0: Hello and welcome back to Pharmacist Diaries, the podcast that reveals the secret lives of pharmacists, from where their journeys began, where they are now, and everything in between. I am your host, Anisha Patel, and on today's episode, I'm super excited to introduce Ofran Al-Masawi to the podcast. This conversation is epic and you guys are going to love it. If you have an interest in research, or maybe you've thought about it in the past, but you haven't done anything about it, or you don't really know where to start, then this is the episode for you. Ofran is a research guru and is currently completing a fellowship with the National Institute of Health and Care Research. This episode focuses solely on helping you guys to navigate the world of pharmacy research and encourage you to get involved. I asked Ofran a whole host of questions. Everything that starts from what is NIHR and how they provide a service to pharmacists if you're interested in applying for a fellowship, how you go about doing that, what to do to make the most out of your application, or even stepping back to the beginning of your career and identifying what steps you need to take from the early stages as a newly qualified pharmacist, all the way to the point where you're ready to step into a fellowship. She gives you ideas. She gives you feedback. She talks about the pros and cons of doing research with NIHR. And she truly helps us to navigate what steps we need to take to get involved. I love this episode because there is so much good content and information that you can take away and apply to your day-to-day role. Overall, this episode is inspirational, motivational and educational. I hope you guys Thank love you it. Pharmacist Diaries, first of all. And thanks for coming on to the podcast today to Thank talk you. about your career. Thank you. <laughs> Um, so, I guess we'll start with um, why you became a pharmacist in the first place.
1: Oh, yes. Um, I It wasn't planned. It happened. I was a little bit disorganized when I was doing my A-levels and I was not sure what I wanted to do afterwards. And my father was, I knew I wanted to be in a lab and I knew I wanted to, be, to do a science topic. And I knew I wanted to do something healthcare related. Um, and at the time, my father suggested pharmacy, and that's what I applied for <laughs> and got it. Um, yeah.
0: I was in a similar situation. I think there's quite a few of us actually who've yeah. kind of fallen in the path. Even Steve mentioned that he kind of fell into pharmacy when he was an A level student, kind of it just married up with a lot of the things that he liked, and he thought, well, yeah. why not? Um, my parents owned. They're not pharmacists, but they owned a community pharmacy for 25 years. So my dad was like, it's a brilliant profession for women. Um, You know, you can enjoy uh, motherhood when you get married. You can locum, you Mm. can do hospital, you can do community. There's a lot of variety. And I think that you would really enjoy it and you can chop and change. Um, So, you know, he had recommended that I go down that
1: pathway. I don't think I thought that far ahead. (laughs) I went went to visit. I remember um, an open day visit with King's. And the first thing they took us through were the labs, and the smell of the labs just got me. <laughs> and I thought, oh yes, that's what I'm going to be.
0: That's amazing. Though. <laughs> you know, you knew from very early on, and that's actually quite a unique sort of experience because a lot of um, pharmacy students now, or even you know, ten, fifteen years ago, a lot of people were trying to get into medicine. Um, were unfortunate or knew they'd have to kind of wait another year to try again because it was so competitive and then sort of fell into pharmacy Mm. um, and then discovered their path well throughout kind of university. So it's good you had some idea from the beginning. Yes. And you're still with us today. I am. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Um, so what was it like for you in university? Um, in terms of like your passions and where you could see yourself? So you obviously liked the lab environment. Were you expecting that you would continue that journey?
1: Yeah, I, I thought I was going to finish university and go straight into a PhD. And I actually did that. Um as in I finished I knew I was going to do my pre-reg because doing the pre-reg will just give you, it it just ticks off a completion box. There's no point in doing three years and then just let it hang. So I did the pre-reg, yeah. And when I finished, I, while I was waiting for, I I got offered um, three PhDs and I picked one of them. So while I was waiting for that to happen, I started working as a junior pharmacist. And then when they told me to, Come and do the PhD. I just dropped everything, handed in my resignation, and walked off to do it. And then a week later, the funding fell through. So, and because I had refused to do any other topic um, except for the one that I wanted, so I just said, "No, I'm not picking another one. I'll I'll just go back to um, um, working and then wait and see what happens." And that took another fifteen to twenty years. <laughs> really? Oh my goodness! I just refused to do any other topic until I wanted. I wanted to do protein engineering.
0: And what is it about protein engineering that you are so interested in
1: to I wait just that really long? I really liked it. I did. I, I didn't do protein engineering in the end. So as you know, I just had to um, waited that long and gave up in the end. Um, it's when I was doing my. Um, Finally, I did Receptor Pharmacology and Medicinal Chemistry and I absolutely loved those two topics. And one of the things I used to do instead of revising for my exams would sit down and try to predict how a protein would fold on a piece of paper and go back to my lecturer and say, what do you think of this? And um, he used to say, we have computers that do that. You need to focus on revision. (laughs) Get the basics. Uh, So in the end, um, he had a project that was protein engineering and when he said here's a project protein engineering I said absolutely yes so dropped everything to go and do it but the funding fell through so oh what a shame yeah that was depressing and and then I didn't really do I just went into clinical pharmacy and it's you know life engulfs you and um in the end I did a master's um afterwards anyway so so
0: tell us a little bit about, I guess, your your clinical journey and how it led to doing the, you've done two master's degrees, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your clinical journey
1: and then how that marries up with the master's degrees that you have. Um, so I did, As um, I went mostly into um, intensive care because the reason I liked it is I thought it was more closer to the pharmacology that we studied. You get more into the what um, what um, drugs you're infusing? What they're doing to your receptors and what's happening? And I liked that. I liked the molecular level of things. Um, but as you know, working in hospital, that's probably a tiny fraction of your daily job. And um, I did intensive care. I did clinical trials. And that I found that really fascinating and you know getting to know new things. And yeah, I, I got into teaching as well. Um, so I was teaching postgraduate diploma when I was um, a pharmacist in York, and um, eventually I thought it's time for me to do a master's. And I looked around and I found that, uh, and by then I was, pract- I was in pediatrics, pediatric intensive care, and I found that kings were doing a master's uh, it's a new master's, and it was advanced pediatrics. So I started, um, applied, got it, and I started doing that and, one of the things i liked about that masters degree is that it had a double module of research because before doing the masters i was supervising master students to do their projects and i was sort of being an amateur research um, guru but uh, and also an um, amateur statistician trying to help them out with it all self taught but when i got into doing the first masters it really um, the, the research module really I really enjoyed it. And I thought that's where I need to be from engineering proteins to engineering numbers, maybe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess I'll take you back a bit. Um, How did you fall into pediatrics? Because I Uh, guess if you wanted to do an MSc in advanced pediatrics, you will have floated through a children's ward on a rotation.
1: Oh, no, no. I was doing uh, pediatric intensive care at the time. So I was doing adult intensive care to start with. And then at so and at some point one of the jobs that I did said you have to be um lead pharmacist for intensive care. So that was adult and pediatrics. I see. And I focused mo- mostly on the pediatric intensive care. And I thought I actually like enjoyed pediatrics a lot more <laughs>
0: than adults. What is it about pediatrics that you enjoy so much?
1: It's it's the constantly fluctuating environment. Nothing is predictable, everything is down to science, no evidence, so you had to pull out your own evidence and find it. Um It's, and it's also, it's nicer working with, you know, nicer working with little people, I think. It's, it's, um, although it was intensive care, so you you don't really interact with them as such. But it's, you have this, I don't know, probably, it's just a human innate thing that you want to do the best for them and protect them. Not that you don't want to do it for adults. It's, I don't know, something about children that you, makes you even more want to, um, you know, do do even more for them. And that was uh yeah, so that's when I decided to do a master's in advanced pediatrics. And that master's was really good. Actually, it's one of the best things I did. Um and the lecturers were really inspiring. They're, they're the ones, well one of them um who led the research module. He's at Kings actually, Shane Tibby. okay. Yeah yeah he's he's the one that um made me think even more about doing research um, I mean I knew I wanted to do it but more into formally getting into it and um, so when I wanted to do research I found that my stumbling block was that I'm not great at statistics and to find a statistician was really hard so I went and got a master's in medical statistics to um, fill that gap
0: yeah I mean it- It's quite hard sometimes or daunting for uh, the younger generation to go into research. You do your diploma, which involves getting it, you know, involves doing audits and you you kind of start kind of thinking about research in a more in-depth way compared Mm. to your training year or what you do at university. Yeah. So you're kind of gathering those building blocks. But once you complete your diploma and you go into a specialist area... Unless you're going down the advanced pharmacy framework with the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, a lot of the things that you get involved with will be out of, you know, fun or enjoyment Mm -hmm. um, or what the maybe the department needs are. Yeah. Um, but it's not I guess a, a, a structured way, like you like you said, it's quite self directed. So sometimes actually completing um a master's degree allows you to kind of get like a proper foundation. Yeah. Um and get the educational side of, you know, developing research. So those are the real kind of like foundation yeah. blocks that you build in order to get yeah to the next step. That's which true. is quite nice. Yes.
1: I and mean, the thing is I knew the, the the reason I went for the first master's degree is because I knew I was doing a PhD, and because my degree was so long ago, I knew I had to get a master's. Because I went to um, in I was doing the prescribing course at Kings, and I saw some of my old lecturers from Kings, and oddly enough, they recognised me. <laughs> so I and one of them in particular I spoke to, and I said, "Oh, I'm back here um, to do the prescri- prescribing course, but I'm thinking of doing a PhD now." And he said, do the master's first because do a master's first. And so I knew I was doing the master's for a reason because I want, but I didn't want to do just any old master's. I wanted something that I wanted to enjoy. So I waited until something came up that I actually wanted to do, which was the pediatrics one.
0: Yeah. And and not only just enjoyment, I guess, is that you can utilize a lot of that knowledge and skill in
1: your workplace. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, what I mean by enjoying it, is it actually fits in with what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And sometimes, uh, you know, the, we're seeing a lot more that uh, our junior pharmacists and our band sevens in general, a lot of people are going through the prescribing course, Yeah, but then they're unable to utilize it on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. So it is nice to be part of, yeah. you know, a course and then see how you put that into practice in, in yeah. real life, which is great.
1: I mean, in a way I was already doing that, but before I even did the master's because I was supervising master's projects and I thought that should have come after I've done. But I, I, again, as I said, I didn't want to just do a master's for the sake of doing it. I wanted it to be something that I'll be interested in, relevant to what I was doing. And then that would bring the enjoyment factor to it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And
1: what led you to your second master's then? Well, it's because I finished, I, I really liked the double research module in the first masters then I, when I wanted to go and do my own research I realized statisticians are so rare <laughs> they're like gold dust and if I don't do it no one else is going to do it for me so I went and retrained as a statistician.
0: Amazing um
1: how long is that uh, masters one year? It's one year but I was working full-time at the time so I did it over two years and um It was hard because I ended up losing a lot of my annual leave, went part-time, but I was so determined to get it. And I must say, it was one of the most enjoyable masters I have ever done. Uh, And why is that? I just loved, I didn't know how much I love statistics. Well, that's amazing. Well, it's maths. It's the whole numbers. Numbers are really lovely. And you found something that you're really passionate
0: about and it's a a super unique area, which like you said, it's like gold dust.
1: Yeah, at the time they were gold dust, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) No, but as in when I wanted one, I couldn't find one. I suppose my projects were a little tiny. Here's, Here's a data set of 50 people I collected, can you help me? And they had, you know, big statisticians had massive projects on and here's me wasting well not wasting but you know trying to get in there with my little data set and I thought well for these little things we need someone who's in-house and I became the in-house and hopefully um but then that led me on to bigger things
0: and I guess from a funding point of view and from the hospital's perspective, was it tif- was it challenging to get funded for both those master's degrees? Because I can imagine that yeah, working in different departments, it can be quite tough to yeah. convince the education and training team to support them. Um, not always, not but I think resources and money is becoming quite tight now and we have to yeah. really see the advantage of putting you into the course. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, tell
1: me how how was that for you? Well, the first one, the funding wasn't um, it wasn't very hard in terms of funding because my department had already or, or our hospital had an arrangement with Kings for a number of master's degrees, I think, and I was lucky to get in there just before they they the, the arrangement ends that there was one or two spaces left. So that was just luck, to be honest. Otherwise, the funding would have been hard and I would have probably have to have to have funded it myself. But in terms of the time dedicated to it, I lost all my annual leave nearly. And I did get study leave, of course. My my department was really, really kind and really understanding and supportive, but there's only so much annual leave they can give you when you do it. I mean, study leave they can give you. So I used up nearly all my annual leave in the... In these two years, I think I had 12 days over the two years to take.
0: That must have been exhausting. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> when you find something that you love yeah. <laughs> and when you do something that you do truly enjoy, yeah. like this podcast it's a good example. Yeah. I'm doing this outside of full-time yeah. uh, working yes. and I'm a parent of two kids, one of which is, is still a baby <laughs> Dad, <yeah. laughs> under, under the age of one. And I think people always ask me like, you know, how do, how do, you, do you find it? time to do mm-hmm. it? And are you like staying up till two, three in the morning? No, I'm actually in bed every day at nine o'clock. That's my routine. Um, because you, you you never know when a baby's going to wake up in the night. Yesterday, unfortunately, he was up from two till four a.m., which was very frustrating when I knew I had this today. But it's part and parcel of being a mum, and part and parcel of really, you know, It'd juggling lots. <laughs> oh, thanks. I did. So you know, it, it's it's all about perspective, really, yeah. and putting things, prioritizing things that you, you you're really passionate about. And I'm a huge advocate for that now mm. because I found something that I genuinely love. Yeah. Um, the creativity that comes with this, yeah. the innovation, it, it's mine. Like I'm taking control of something myself. All the ideas come from me. Yeah. And no one's got control over how I run it and what I do and who I interview. Like it's it's just. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's just me. And, and that makes me really happy. Um, that kind of creative freedom makes me really happy. And I'm starting to like, I'm gaining a lot of skills I didn't have and then putting them forward for ideas in my, in my day day job, which is also really exciting. That's really nice. Yeah. It's a good little hobby. It is. i call it a passion project
1: <laughs> passion project
0: yeah so i guess when you completed both of your mses you were then kind of ready to say hey i'm i'm going for the phd or were you still waiting for a topic that would uh, no
1: no i you? actually started applying for the phd one year into the first msc okay because i knew it was going to be a long process cuz it's i th- i thought i'd go down the route of the fellowship rather than a stipended phd for a number of reasons well um i mean my husband is amazing he put up with so so many years of me doing so much um going part time and not really actually showing anything for the part time because i was working on the mscs but i in the, within the first year of the ms first msc i started to prepare the groundwork for an, an IHR application because i knew i was heading that way i mean the whole thing the whole reason why i started the MSC is because i it was my bridge over to a PhD. So I, I knew where the gaps were in terms of my NIH application, um, where I was deficient and where I wasn't, because I I spent nearly two and a half years looking at what to do. And I actually submitted one application for a project at the time. Um, and I got to interview stage, but I didn't get it. But um, there's... So I I parked that project and finished my second master's and then immediately started on a new project that all these projects also come from practice, from your daily clinical practice. So the the first project was um, something that I did with one of the clinicians at St. Mary's, um, worked with him on it. So he had the data set, he had an idea... And I worked with him on the idea and we changed it to something slightly different. And I did it as a as a, a master's project. But from that, every time you do a project, you end up with 10 more questions. And that led to this massive question that I had, which I developed into a proposal for the NIHR. And that went through the first time.
0: Amazing. Let's, um, I guess, strip this whole application process down. So first of all, because um, we have students listening in, we have newly qualified pharmacists, trainee pharmacists, all the way to very experienced pharmacists. But, yeah. Um, who are NIHR? Oh, the National Institutes of Health Research. So they're now the National Institutes of Health and Care Research. And um, what is the, I guess, give us a little bit of detail about what the fellowship involves and what the application process is like.
1: Yeah um so they they're the biggest funders of health research and they the advantage of working with the NIHR is that they actually care about your career they don't sort of just say here's a person that wants a bit of funding to do a course it's not like that they 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 look at people in terms of what's their long-term t- trajectory are they in it for the long run is this what they want And and it shows that they have such skilled people that, you know, you could whatever you write in the application form, and they can actually really pick on those things and decipher them. Um, So, the application is incredibly competitive, but if you know what you want and you have really robust um, background, because if that was your interest in the first place, you would have probably started from the beginning in doing certain things that would get you to to that goal and by the time you come to the apply to the NIHR you have done a number of things like you've been involved in some projects you've done some publications you have dedicated some of your own time at least to research and by the time you get to the NIHR you've done these things and you're ready as a person and and in a career stage to take that commitment where they invest in you to do that project and it's a huge responsibility you can't just go there and say please give me three hundred thousand so i can do this project because it's fun it's it's more of a i want to do this for a number of reasons sorry <laughs> i want to do this for the the one thing they they judge you on or they um not judge you i suppose uh the, the, the five things actually they um um, assess you on. So it's the, it's the project because it's a personal fellowship. They assess the project. So, is it beneficial for the NHS, NHS and patients? They assess you as a person to say, are you dedicated enough? And where is your career going? And is this the path you, you're carving out for yourself? And so, therefore, you're worth investing t- into as a person. The research environment that you're in, have you placed yourself in an environment where f- it facilitates this? project that you want to and the career that you're going to um head towards and they look at um the project itself um sorry the um supervisors are they going to be supportive enough can't remember what the fifth one is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but It'll, if it comes back to yeah, you you yeah. can let me know yeah so it's, it's the the assessment is quite rigorous but it's it's nice when if you know what you want and you've worked Towards that goal, you can. It's successful. It's not. You know. you, You think back. You think, okay, yeah, that was fine. But the first application I did, I suppose I wasn't as ready as I thought, even though I knew always that this is where I'm heading. Um, it the the usefulness of the first rejection and that it highlighted where my deficiencies were, so I knew where to focus and address them. And that, even though at the time I thought, oh. Gosh, that's terrible that you rejected me. But thinking back and looking back, I think they actually really knew what they were doing.
0: Yeah, no, and it's good that you have, um, I guess, you utilize that rejection to understand oh, yeah, more yeah, yeah. about where your barriers are or what you need to learn or what processes you need to yeah. or steps you need to take to improve in order to... yeah. Get awarded the next time, and it's good that you did. You you know you fought your way to to trying again. That you were determined.
1: Um, it, it's clear you can't from, just even, stop if you want it. Yeah, if you know no. that way you're heading. You can't just stop. And yeah. also, if you speak to anyone who's you know part of this any fellowship, not just NITrA, but say the Welcome Trust or MRC or anyone, you speak to any of those people, they'll give you a long list of rejections and what they've learned from them. Because if you're if you're going to succeed you will have rejections and then you move on from them without wallowing in them, I suppose. Defe- Did you feel quite defeated because it
0: takes such a long time to do the application? How long does it take in on average to
1: get an application done? I'd say it for a really good application, you can't just suddenly decide, oh, let me put in an application. They get, The thing opens up for three months, but developing the idea and why you want to do this and how it all started probably starts a year ahead so i i worked on each application for a year probably so that's and by the time you submit it it's a massive document about 75 pages long so it's not um a little thing but the second application i remember was so much easier as in it, i don't remember it taking that much out of me because I was constantly doing it for a, over a period of a year because it was brewing in my head always. This is the project. This is the idea, and I found myself even when I was uh, commuting to work, I'd have an idea and I'd sit down and type a paragraph on my phone <laughs> because I thought, "Oh, I like this idea." And so, by the time we came to putting it together, the background had already been developed. the The sort of the uh, general idea was developed. Everything was put together in a way in a draft format um because I've been thinking about it and just living it for a long time yeah but also the biggest factor is that the supervisors that I had picked were just world class and if it wasn't for them I don't think I would they were so good in making me think about how to um make it more you know how how to Bring my ideas across clear, more more clearly, um, in a much clearer way. In particular, my primary supervisor.
0: How do you like? Um, I guess how do you find the the right supervisor? Because yeah, yeah I mean that must it, it, it's it's a long process doing the application. Yeah. And obviously you want someone who's going to be supportive and really mentor you and someone who's very experienced who can actually help you with the application process as well. Have you got any advice in terms of knowing who to turn to?
1: Um, It depends on what topic you've chosen. So my topic was in paediatric intensive care, but it had a huge statistical element to it. So I was... Doing something that's um, very data science-y, very statistically, but applied to a real world setting in a question that is it, that it was just born out of my practice. So the, my clinical supervisor was um, the same supervisor that I used for the first project because it's a continuation of that project and he's an expert in his field when it comes to paediatric intensive care. So uh, my primary supervisor, she's um she was one of my lecturers at um when I did my MSc in stats and she's one of the world's top statisticians and she's um she's incredible. So um she's probably between her and size, so they're the two main ones. In fact, there are three main supervisors. Um and my third supervisor is also a professor of statistics, but she is um, um, a national expert in data linkage, so she's she's also incredible. And I knew what elements of my project were needed needed what sort of expertise, and those are the people I went out and got. So I knew I was doing data linkage. I knew it was in pediatric intensive care. And my fourth supervisor, who is um, um also a, a epidemiologist, a professor of epidemiology and pediatric intensive, and he, he looks after the pediatric intensive care um, project. So he's an expert in, in that field as well. So the, the elements of my project determined who I go for. And of course, my final supervisor I had lots, <laughs> the fifth one. He's um, a really prominent professor in pharmacy, but he's done a um, research career. And so he knows administra- administrative data really well. He's he's worked on massive um, projects that are not just um, in the UK, but international. So he was my professional sort of inspiration. You've got a, a big support network. They are amazing in that they just gave their time selflessly. And I'm so lucky. But that's what you find. If if you, you have enough drive, I suppose, you also rely on the amazing kindness of people
0: <laughs> I mean to do what you're doing it just I, it it's inspirational because it takes a lot of dedication and time and energy and there are lots of sort of obstacles along the way and it's a big it's a big learning experience but what have been the main sort of advantages of doing this like what what is it that you like have achieved from it that you're thinking like this is just life-changing and I'm so mm-hmm. glad that I've gone down this pathway.
1: So there <clears throat> before I started this every time I wanted to do any anything to do with research it was always my own time as in if you really wanted to get stuck in and do something that's quite a you know a sizable piece of work you'd you'd go and I'd go and spend weekends spend evenings you know, get get the data, say, for example, for my current practice, but I'd really have to use my own time. And it was this competing interest between your clinical commitments and doing research. And I don't think in pharmacy we are set up very well to incorporate research as part of our daily, practice which is a shame really because I think my undergrad training they trained us as primary um, principal investigators and yet we come out and we don't apply any of that in our daily practice and I it it's yeah so it's it's difficult to put it in and the time in if you really wanted to focus on research and when you try to focus on research you feel a bit guilty because you neglected your well not neglected but it's competing with your clinical duties so this gives you the time and the focus to really become an expert in some particular field that you're interested in because you put the project together you selected your supervisors you have gone in front of the NIHR or MRC welcome whoever they are and presented your case and got the funding so you've got this weight of this responsibility of funding on you to say i better prove that i'm worth it <laughs> so so yeah it it's it's nice it's it's your own project you own it you focus on your research without feeling the guilt of oh i really, you know everyone else is picking up my wards for me today <laughs>
0: yeah no yeah. it's really it's really hard to do both at the same time like yeah. when you're in a clinical job when you're working in the NHS, when you're a ward pharmacist, whether yeah. you're seeing patients in clinic, whether you're working in the dispensary, yeah. a lot of your time is focused on, on the patient. Mm. You also have and other admin as well. Yeah, lots, lots of, of admin. admin. Yeah. You're doing education and training. Yeah. You're potentially going to be a trainee pharmacist or diploma tutor. Yeah. You've got people that you're managing on a day-to-day basis That's in terms lot. of junior yeah. pharmacists. You've got finance to think about, guidelines to write, formulary applications. All of that, exactly. It is full on. So to find, and this is, I've been trying to, like, I work in education and training in Evelina. So part of my job as the academic link pharmacist is to look at this and incorporate, for example, the advanced pharmacy framework into our day-to-day routine for our juniors to work on towards stepping from a band seven to a band eight A. Yeah. Yeah and we've also looked at how we can encourage our juniors to get involved with more research maybe get some posters out there especially with MPPG great opportunity to get involved as a stepping stone and just see whether or not yeah. that you like it but i have found that people like if you look at the the entire department there aren't that many pharmacists who are really interested in it and it's it i find it quite strange like you said yeah, you're right. you do a lot of it in, in university, yeah. you know, you you are you, your focus as well for your fourth year for the yes. first like two terms is on this massive like dissertation project. And then you go into the workplace and you're so focused on the clinical day-to-day admin mm. leadership roles that you know it always gets side, it's always getting yeah. sidelined and, and I, it I, needs to be not the other that way around. disconnect it needs through to me be, when i first
1: quali- yeah qualified. it needs to be
0: equal yes it needs we need we need to transition towards improving how much research and like you said pharmacists are so well-placed to do the research on medicines to improve mm. outcomes for patients. Like, we're in an amazing position. Mm. Um, and in paediatrics, I think there's a lot going on. I and absolutely love everything that's going on in paediatrics. And it's, huge it's, gaps everywhere in pediatrics. But, yeah, yeah, there are huge gaps that we can fill. Um, I think for some people they do find it quite um, a long time process in terms of the time and it seems like you just have to do so much work to get there um but you don't so- always have to get to the
1: you know, the phd level the multiple mscs or whatever that's just something i enjoy mm. it's because if I, I know if i stop my brain will die um and i actually really enjoy doing it and putting it back and seeing you know th- this whole clinical research connect is just really interesting but also just to mention and you said that um the lack of research sort of embed, embedded into um pharmacy it's if if you are going to practice one of every job description if you read every pharmacist job description it would say put current research into practice or practice evidence based medicine or that that's something that you've got to do it's if you don't do that and you're not really doing your job right And if you can't derive your evidence from the literature because you haven't got the skill or if we haven't got the skill, then we're not doing our jobs. So we cannot be not interested in research because if you're not interested in research and you're not interested in evidence-based medicine, then we're not interested in doing the best for our patients.
0: I like that concept. I like the way that you've thought about it. It makes sense.
1: It doesn't work if you're not interested. <laughs> yeah. So I've always said that because I used to run critical appraisal sessions. And I said, you don't need to be a statistician, a researcher, an epidemiologist. So you don't need to be any of those. But you need to be, you need to have enough skills that when you read a, p- a new piece of research, you know how to extract the correct information out of it. And if you don't know how to do that, there's no way you can do the best for your patients.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, since starting at the Evelina four years ago, I had um, kind of in my mind, I said to myself, like, try and get one publication or audit or Mm -hmm. poster a year at least, like as a minimum, try and do that because... It is really challenging to find the time, but there are gaps in practice, like you said. And now I've started specializing in palliative care. It's been eye-opening because yeah. now I'm responsible for that cohort of patients within the Evelina from the pharmacy's perspective, and I really want to get involved. There is such little evidence in that area. Yeah. So I've joined you know, the pediatric palliative medicine group, Um, And I'm working alongside our consultants and, you know, on a national scale, people are getting involved in research and I'm just sort of tapping into that network and then hopping on to a bit of kind of research that's going on. And that's a really good stepping stone to get started because it can be overwhelming to get to the point where you want to do a PhD Or get enough research to work towards maybe a consultant pharmacist, you know, position if people if that's the pathway that people want to go down. But I think incorporating it into your job so that you can use that evidence in day to day practice or do the research and whatever the outcome is, you can create a guideline for your hospital. Like as long as it kind of impacts your area, it makes it a little bit easier to find the motivation
1: and the determination to actually get it done. I mean, especially working in paediatrics. How many times do you get um, submissions to drugs and therapeutics wanting to use something that's quite novel, and then you need to sit down and decide based on the evidence provided that you know the, the benefit versus risk. How do, how did you decide that, mm. and how did we decide that? And yeah, it's it's um, yeah. I think it, we need to. Um, we evaluate <laughs> probably how we practice maybe it starts from undergraduate level that don't expect to go out there and not do any research because at least understand enough of you know research skills so that you can look at other people's research and understand it not necessarily doing it to a level not it's not everyone's um sort of passion i suppose yeah
0: yeah no i completely agree i believe you're coming to the end of your phd now well, are you
1: I'm, I'm just rewriting my i've written the thesis <laughs> um but as you know the first draft is always a bit rubbish <laughs> um oh, i feel it's it's more rubbish than anyone else's <laughs> so i'm just re- going over it again to um do you do you nice nice way of putting it
0: <laughs> how, how
1: many years has it taken you so far It's supposed to take three years, but, and I used um, um, national data sets. So I used hospital episode statistics and the Picinet data set and I um, got them linked to create a longer data set. And I thought when, because my my PhD started in six months later, we had lockdown. So I spent most of my PhD not really interacting, but doing it remotely. Um, The problem was, is that I thought with my PhD having, um, you know, just large data element to it, it doesn't matter. Uh, They're just going to um, give me the data and I'll carry on working. Um, But most data providers had a backlog because they were prioritizing COVID related projects. So they stopped. So I ended up with about a 14 month delay. So I ended up with a nine month extension because the NIHR were great in granting the extension. And... I've managed to finish everything within a time period. It's just that the first draft wasn't great to submit, so I'm just re- rewording it to submit it, hopefully, in the next month or two.
0: And when do you expect to be, be, be done with this uh, part of your career journey? In terms of the PhD, when do you f- do your final submission?
1: Uh, in a month or two, hopefully. Oh, in yeah, a yeah, month yeah, or two, yeah. that's it.
0: Then, and then you've got your Viva afterwards. Yes. yes. And what's
1: your next adventure? So um, yeah, as I said, things always start as overlapping. So, <laughs> so I've actually started two years ago thinking about post PhD. Oh my and that's
0: a, that's insane. Like you, it, it's normal, but you're constantly thinking like two or three steps ahead. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have to.
1: But if if I suppose if that's what you like to, yeah, do, absolutely. You always like you. You're thinking. next step ahead in terms of what i need to do next but but if it was a one-off thing for you just say i can't wait to get rid of it and move on to something else whereas for me i started 18 months into the phd and thinking about what's next and started to write the skeletons of a few more proposals for the postdoctoral grants and so on um so yeah i have now about there's one particular niche idea that i've already I'm already working on trying to put together, and um, most of what I'd like to do is um, use what I all the skills that I got in my PhD to try and figure out or develop a pipeline for pediatric um, um, medicines in terms of evidence. To and and we're in a good position at GOSH in that we have a lot of data, so we could we could really. Squeeze the life out of that data and get to the maximum out
0: of it. Oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I guess, um, we've already been talking an hour, you might not have realized already. Has it really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Am I turned into Steve. <laughs> no, you haven't turned into Steve. Um, Steve, Steve, I could definitely, I better do- tell him, <laughs> <laughs> done an extra like two hours with Steve. Um, no, I guess um, you know, to close off the podcast and, and, and I, you know, you're really inspiring in terms of all the research you've done and that's true dedication. And I love how determined that you've been step-by-step, like, you know what you've wanted to do. And, and it's always nice to meet someone who, who has that, that passion. Um, so yeah, good for you. Um, is that, um, my question is, is that if you were to speak to students or to junior pharmacists, I guess, what, what advice would, would you give them if they were, Sort of at the point where they are considering research as part of their career journey, yeah. like they really want to get into it. Where where would you kind of advise them to start?
1: Well definitely start with smaller projects, um, teaming up with other people who are doing research. So do the data collection for them maybe, um, and and get involved and get stuck into thinking about the analysis, thinking about how how it's written, you know, write a paper try to publish. Um, it all starts from small projects because you're not going to just suddenly jump and, and do a, I don't know, multi-center study or whatever. Um, get, speak to people who've been down that path and maybe latch on to them for a bit and see if if you like the way they're, maybe shadow them. Um, have a mentor that is doing that sort of work and see where they can get you, as in what what type of work do they do on a daily basis and what their job's like? And is this something of interest to you? And anyone who's a new graduate is no stranger to research anyway. So they know what it's like. Maybe between graduating and suddenly five years down the line, we forget what it was like. And then suddenly we're scared of research. But if you think you want to make that you know, you definitely you need to make some of it part of your career because I said you need to practice evidence-based medicine. But if you need to, um, if you think you want to get more seriously stuck into it, say, make it the bulk of your job. I'd say, yeah, start with a small project, join other research teams. And the thing is, when you when you're working, you always think, I have found something, a question, and you try to go and search for evidence, and you try, to, and then you find nothing you've we've come across this so many times all of us where we have a question to say does this work in such and such and then we can't find the answer there you go there's your research question think about it every it there's a research question every day and if you're interested enough you would follow that up with generating the evidence for it rather than waiting for someone to generate the evidence but definitely join research groups i would say do small projects and get mentors
0: Yeah, nice. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And yeah, really excited to see what comes uh, from your work and your career in the future and we'll keep in touch. Thank you. Yeah, you too. Good luck with your podcasts. Thank you.